If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today, we've got the latest episode in our new series on Britain's greatest prime ministers. Hello, and welcome to our new series profiling some of Britain's most important prime ministers. I'm Matt Elton, Deputy Editor of BBC History magazine. It's 300 years since Robert Walpole became Britain's first prime minister. To mark this seismic moment in the nation's political history, we asked a series of leading historians to each nominate the two leaders that they believe achieved most during their time in number 10. Today we'll be hearing from historian and author Andrew Roberts, whose first choice is Robert Gascoigne Cecil, the third Marquess of Salisbury, who was Prime Minister three times during the late 19th century. So the first question really is, I have to confess that I haven't heard very much of Uh, the Prime Minister that you've chosen here, which is Robert Gascoigne Cecil. Can you briefly set the scene as to who he was and when his time as Prime Minister fell? Robert Gascoigne Cecil, the third Marquess of Salisbury, was Prime Minister three times, between 1885 and 86, then 1886 to 92, 
and then for the whole period from 1895 to 1902. So he was actually prime minister for longer than either Gladstone or Disraeli. And uh, he was a titan, really, of the late Victorian period. Do you think that Disraeli and Gladstone and how huge their reputation is has obscured uh, the reputation of this person you've chosen? Yes, um, Salisbury isn't that well known and it seems extraordinary considering all his achievements. And the reason, I think, is... um, because Gladstone and Israeli are such enormous figures. They came just before him. He overlapped, of course, with both of them. But they came just before him, really, in their premierships. And as a result, uh, because of their interaction, which was one of the great political duels of uh, British history, he's been um, rather um, underestimated and left out, frankly. Heading back towards the start of his life, to what extent did his early experiences shape his later political career? His early experiences were absolutely essential to understanding him. He was an aristocrat, but he was a poverty-stricken one because his father disinherited him and uh, and fell out with him. And so he was forced into journalism, which, of course, for aristocrats in the 19th century was a, a hugely uh, sort of almost embarrassing thing to have to uh, write for, for journals. Um, yet it did force him to... Um, take on all the advantages of journalism in that he was able to master words, he was able to um, get concise um, thoughts down on paper successfully. Um, He was in opposition for much of his life, which also was very good for the time that it came into uh, government because he knew how he was going to be attacked. Uh, his his route to becoming prime minister um, took him through the Secretary of State for India, which was a tremendously important department, needless to say, in uh, the 19th century. And so, all in all, he had an absolutely ideal way to uh, to become prime minister, even though it didn't seem it at the time, especially being poverty stricken, of course. And by, and by poverty and by poverty stricken, of course, I I say in a 19th century aristocratic way. I mean, it's it, it's he still had servants, for example. Um, and to what extent did his interpersonal relationships early on in his life shape how he viewed? politics and democracy even. He had a um, a fear of democracy, a terrible fear that um, the majority was going to uh, basically disinherit the uh, minority and that they were going to use, um, the working classes essentially were going to use sheer numbers to beggar everybody richer than themselves. This was his, his fear. Uh, he used to wake up at night uh, terrified and sitting up having nightmares at the idea of, uh, of democracy and, and the mob coming down the the uh, um, the long drive at Hatfield House, but uh, of course it wasn't to happen. But nonetheless, it did mean that he took decisions later on in his uh, career to ensure that a good proportion of the working class is voted Tory. We're obviously talking about uh, a period of time which is quite removed from the present day political environment. To what extent was the office of Prime Minister comparable to what it's become today? Lord Salisbury was not the kind of prime minister that you get in the 19th century at all. He uh, very much saw the cabinet as being something that was a grand council of the nation. And uh, so he was not interested in 
imposing his views on it. He actually managed to impose his view on it quite a lot, owing to the fact that he was an incredibly intelligent man, very witty, had tremendous foresight and uh, was a powerful personality. But he didn't impose his, uh, his views on it in some kind of constitutional way, in the way really that the presidentialization of the office of prime minister allows modern day prime ministers to do. And, and what challenges did he inherit when he came to office? The major challenge and the one that really kept him in office, frankly, for um, the whole of his uh, premiership was um, Irish Home Rule. And this is, of course, an issue that has very few real resonances in modern day British politics. But it was uh, the thing that completely dominated late Victorian politics, the idea that Ireland was going to rule itself rather than being ruled from Westminster. And he opposed that and his opposition to it and the support of the old Whigs, who were the liberal unionists, who were liberals but also opposed it, uh, meant that he could stay in office for very long time, 13 and a half years. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Um, and what were the qualities that he had as a person that allowed him to have this remarkable period in office? As well as uh, getting on very well with the leaders of the Liberal Unionists, Lord Hartington and Joseph Chamberlain, and so having the personal chemistry necessary for that, he was also a tremendous public speaker, somebody who could keep huge crowds uh, happy for hours, and <laughs> booming at them from, uh, from the pu public podiums. And it was extraordinary. Of course, they had no microphones in those days. They absolutely just had to shout, really, and to shout for a, a full hour, making uh, jokes about their enemy, political opponents and, uh, and sometimes making very profound, thoughtful comments to audiences of, of thousands in the pouring rain. <laughs> it was a very different form of, of politics, of course. So he had that. 
He also, as I mentioned earlier, was a, was a journalist, so he had this very pungent uh, acerbic written style. He had a, of course, in, in those days with the, uh, with the lack of any kind of media apart from the Times newspaper, really, he had the ability to, to think in, in long form about the problems facing Britain and, uh, and the empire. And uh, as I say, he was a highly intelligent, perhaps our most, along with, with, I would say, possibly Gladstone, our most intelligent prime minister in terms of sheer, pure brain power. And as I say, he was also very witty. So all in all, he had a, um, a lot of advantages in, in becoming such an effective prime minister. Would we recognise anything about that style of speech making today? It would be very difficult to uh, listen to one now, I think, because of the long sentences, the wonderful, you'd, you'd have several sub-clauses in the sentences, you would have a, uh, a kind of upper-class voice that, frankly, outside Jacob Rees-Mogg, you don't get uh, in politics much uh, today as well. They, they certainly didn't believe in any kind of sort of social media soundbitey kind of, um, of politics either. And so uh, I think it would be something that would be exhilarating to hear anybody speak like that again today. But um, we would find it very, very strange. And if you had to somehow uh, boil down his career as prime minister into three defining episodes, which episodes would you would you pick? I think the first one has to be Irish Home Rule. You know, they, it uh, it went on, of course, long after his time in office, and it had started long before his time in office. But um, it was the moment in which he was able, to, essentially, to to break the Liberal Party in the last quarter of the nineteenth century. Um, then the Queen's uh, Jubilee, Queen Victoria's uh, Diamond Jubilee in 1897 is um, a uh, extraordinary affair, the, the sort of height of empire in many ways in terms of the power and prestige of the British Empire. And he was prime minister during that and in many ways organised that. And then lastly, the Fashoda crisis of 1898, where we could have gone to war against the French uh, because of a clash in the Upper Nile, showed the best of um, Salisbury's toughness, um, but also his capacity to keep the peace. And you see this again in the uh, earlier, of course, 20 years earlier in the Congress of Berlin, when he was foreign secretary. You see it when he was um, dealing with the Americans in 1888 over Venezuela, that could have gone very badly wrong. And you see it also in the scramble for Africa and his deals basically with uh, with Otto von Bismarck. So, so the, I think Fashoda sums up his peacemaking capacity, something that, of course, we were uh, we desperately needed after he had left office. And this was a period where there were a huge range of geopolitical powers battling it out and lots of tension on the international stage. How easy was it to navigate all of this and what and what personal qualities did he bring to doing that? It was tremendously difficult, of course, because diplomatically and dynastically, uh, Europe was um, at each other's throats um, again and again. And you needed to ensure that a great European war never broke out, primarily, of course, another one post-1870 between Germany and France. And uh, he felt that the best way of doing that was to keep all sides guessing about what 
Britain would do. So the, the negative side of that is what's called splendid isolation, which of course is connected to his name. But he certainly didn't see Britain as being isolated at all. He saw Britain as being a kind of honest broker between the various power blocks in Europe. And so he was viewed in internationally uh, with great uh, respect by, uh, by the French leaders, German leaders, Russian leaders, and so on. He also, of course, had to try to protect the British Empire from what was seen as Russian incursions in Afghanistan and, and Persia and northern India and so on. And so um, the way in which he uh, dealt with this sort of ever-moving Rubik's Cube of European interests uh, shows, I think, what an um, impressive statesman he was. And it was under his leadership that Britain became more powerful um, than it had been before. Is, is that fair to say? I think the power and prestige of Britain uh, got to its absolute apogee under Lord Salisbury. And this was very much Lord Salisbury's intention. He didn't, in fact, annex that amount of territory, uh, Burma, but, uh, but not huge amounts in the way that uh, his predecessors had. But he certainly hung on to everything, and it, and he uh, he recaptured um, Sudan in the in the River War. But he also got uh, involved in the Boer War at the end of his career, which, um, although we won it, of course, was uh, a little like the British Empire's Vietnam, frankly. But even taking that into account, the um, British Empire under him uh, got to its uh, not its largest territorial size, because that happened after the First World War, but certainly in terms of power and prestige and, and what Britain could do, it, uh, it, it got to its height under Lord Salisbury. What were his flaws? What were his major weaknesses, I suppose? Well, it's the same flaw, really, that, that an awful lot of prime ministers have, in that he, he didn't really uh, grow his successor. Uh, he, somebody who's been in power a very long time, and you see this again and again in prime ministers. You see this with Margaret Thatcher to an extent. You see it with Tony Blair. Uh, you certainly see it with uh, others. Is that the successor, Winston Churchill? It's also true. Uh, is the successor is not a great success um, themselves. Um, partly this is, of course, just because there's an ennui in the in the electorate. You know, they've got bored of the same party after 13 years or so. But nonetheless, I think it's the duty of a prime minister to try to bring on a uh, a good successor. And with Salisbury, um, he was understandably accused of appalling nepotism because his successor was Arthur Balfour, who was his nephew. And so I think it was a flaw to... Um, you can understand totally how an aristocrat might want... His his own nephew to take over as prime minister. It was a very sort of 19th century, 18th century, in fact, uh, concept. Um, but nonetheless, it was a flaw. And was there an episode that um, tarnished his reputation or that has subsequently come to tarnish his, his image, I suppose? I think the tarnishing of his image really does come with the Boer War, not least, of course, by the introduction of concentration camps, which were not in any way intended to be the kind of extermination camps that the Nazis um, had. In fact, the exact opposite. They were attempting to uh, protect the Boer women and children by taking them off the veldt and away from the uh, war. But nonetheless, needless to say, if your premiership is in any way connected with something uh, like concentration camps, that's going to be very easy for people, detractors, to misinterpret uh, what's going on. Are there any lessons from this story for the politics of the 21st century, do you think? 
I think there are some lessons in that statesmanship is never going to be at a discount. It's always going to be important to uh, have people who have a wide sort of global attitude uh, towards solving problems, which Lord Salisbury certainly did. He kept defence high, of course. He, In fact, it was under him that we had the two-power standard, whereby the Royal Navy had to be, by law, larger than the next two navies in the world combined, uh, which is an extraordinary thing when one comes to think of it, um, but something that uh, the, the Victorians were able to um, pay for. Um, and if you were to create some sort of ultimate prime minister, um, what features or facets or abilities do you think this particular example could contribute? I think Lord Salisbury would make a great identikit uh, prime minister were there such a thing because of his in- high intelligence, because of his his wit. He was also generally good-humoured. He doesn't have the uh, reputation necessarily of, of being jolly, but nonetheless, he was, he was, um, he was a, a good person. And he had this tremendous foresight and this hatred of war. And I think those two are very important things in, in any prime minister. Finally, then, if you could ask him a question, what question would you ask? Um, assuming I'm allowed to ask him a question and he knows what's happened since his death, which is, uh, I think, I think the important thing when one has these uh, these completely diverting parlour games <laughs> like this one, is, um, is to ask him about what he would have done to have averted the First World War. Were he 10 years younger, uh, if he'd lived 10 years longer, he would have been in a position to have been the pretty much key decision maker in Europe, along with the Kaiser, about whether the First World War breaks out, and if so, under what circumstances. And I think that if he were up in heaven looking down and seeing the events of August 1914, I would love to know what was going through his mind in uh, in how that could have been uh, avoided. And finally, we should see him on the same sort of level, the same sort of plane as Disraeli and Gladstone. I would actually put Lord Salisbury on a higher plane than either Disraeli or Gladstone. I think that um, one of the duties of a prime minister is to try to advance the power and prestige of the country of which you're prime minister. And um, Lord Salisbury did that uh, far more successfully, actually, than either either Benjamin Disraeli or William Gladstone. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow when John Higgs will be telling us about the extraordinary poet and painter William Blake.